The first reading today is um, Esther chapter 2, verses 5 to 18, and that's on page 354 of the Pew Bibles. And it's a collection of some very interesting Old Testament names, so I'll warn you in advance. Now there was in a citadel of Susa a Jew of the name of, of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shemi, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jerachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a son named Hadassah, who he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was known, was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had care of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her and provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months of oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was was given her to take with her, from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem in the, in the care of Sheshgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his, of his uncle Abigail to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested, and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any other women, and she won his favor and approved more, and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he, had, so he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet in Esther's banquet for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberty. The second reading is a uh, uh, reading from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. And that's on page 830 of the Bibles. Now, 
Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some priests preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am here, put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress with joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Jesus Christ will overflow on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome. Uh, on a uh, slightly crisp but pleasant day uh, with slightly depleted numbers. Many of our uh, church family are away at the getaway weekend and uh, having a great time. It was, uh, we were up there yesterday and uh, it was a very enjoyable time. We will be praying for them uh, before we look at the word. Uh, but I'd encourage you to have um, Esther open, the intriguing reading we had with all those strange names. We're going to be having a look at uh, that particular book this morning. Uh, and so it's handy to have it open in front of you. There'll be a little bit of flicking back and forth, but uh, encourage you to. Bron, you look cold. Um, just close that door, and then breeze will stop coming in. <laughs> See what else we can do temperature-wise. Let's pray. Uh, Lord and Father, we thank you uh, for the great privilege it is to come and meet in your name. We thank you for uh, your kindness in drawing us to know you, and uh, we thank you that in knowing you, we can have life to the full. Father, we remember uh, our, uh, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are away at Getaway this weekend and we ask that uh, they continue to be having a great time of building uh, fellowship in the Lord there uh, and we ask now as we turn to hear your word that you might speak clearly and plainly to us, uh, speak to us in a way that actually uh, changes and transforms us that we might become more and more the image of Christ. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as uh, Scott hinted at before, in well, more than a hint, uh, when he spoke to the children, in the beige and grey of routine, it's celebrations that provide colour and joy. Now, how we celebrate might be different as different people, uh, but taking time out to party and to feast is something that we all do. 
Uh, so I've got to confess, I'm not a fan of singing happy birthday. Um, you know, I do it. It just isn't me, though. Uh, I, you know, I, I'd personally be more than happy if someone presented me a beautiful cake and kind of left the singing out. That would work for me beautifully. Others, though, love it. I know Scott, for a fact, has a great passion for that song and delights in it. Neither right nor wrong, just different. Uh, but more important than how we celebrate, those things are by the side, is what we celebrate. Because feasting is more than just fun, isn't it? It actually reminds us what's important and significant. Uh, so yesterday was one of my daughter's birthdays and we took time out the night before. We were away, so we took time out the night before on Friday night to celebrate it because she's important. What is it that you celebrate? Whose birthdays? What, what anniversaries? What uh, special events in the calendar? Yeah, and for us as a community, what do we celebrate? Uh, This morning as we take a a one-off glance at the book of Esther, we need to think about how we celebrate the deliverance God gives his people. How do you delight, how do you savour the experience of salvation? And how do we as a community, as as a church family, express the joy of being redeemed at that great cross to Christ? Because Esther is written to remind people uh, and God's people particularly, to party. It was okay to snigger and laugh. Um, there are funny bits in the book when we laughed at the 12-month beauty program. Whew. Uh, you know, th- this is a book to explain to Jewish people why they do a particular feast, the Feast of Purim. Uh, Purim just means um, casting lots, you know, chance. It's Passover, when they celebrate that, it's sombre and reflective for Jewish people, but Purim is it's fun and it's loud and it's messy, Uh, Those who who still celebrate it properly start the day by reading the whole of Esther, uh, read through the whole story, and as they do, it's interactive. So there's foot stomping and there's booing and hissing for the villains, Uh, and then they have present time. So they give each other lavish presents and uh, particularly food and drink, but they also, and significantly, they, they give to the poor. They're lavishly generous to those in need. And then comes a slap up celebratory meal. So everyone dresses up in masks and costumes. Um, even they, they have the puppet show of Esther in kind of Punch and Judy style played out for, for kids and for everyone else. You know, fun, loud, messy, joyous. Celebrating deliverance is what the book is all about. So right at the end of the book, chapter 9, it's funny starting at the end, but just go there, 9 verse 20, have a look at it. Uh, Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the province of King Xerxes, near and far, have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, as a month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. And he wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy, giving presents of food to one another, gifts to the poor. Esther is about participating in and celebrating deliverance. Uh, but, but how does it finish with such joy? How do we get there? Um, it's a cracking read. We're not going to read it all, um, as the Jews would have on the Feast of Purim. Uh, but I would encourage you, you know, bedtime reading tonight. Just read over Esther. It's a great read. Uh, a quick overview, just so that we can understand why they end up on this note of celebration. Uh, it's a historical book. Um, it's set, uh, all happened around 480 BC in what we know as modern-day Iran. But in a way, that's not, it's not dull, dry, dusty history. 
The writer understands the power of the personal. What do I mean by that? Well, at the moment, there, there is the massive worldwide concern over the swine flu. Uh, speaking statistically, as of Thursday, uh, the virus was suspected in 159 deaths and 2,498 illnesses in Mexico. Now, that's a lot of people. Uh, and yet I suspect it's not nearly as moving to you or I as knowing that on Thursday the flu claimed its first victim uh, on foreign soil, on US soil, uh, a 23-month-old toddler, Mexican toddler, who had gone across the border seeking better medical help. You know, it's not that it happened outside Mexico that makes it affect us more. It's that while 159 deaths are tragic, it just seems so big that it's a statistic. I can't feel it. But one toddler, I can relate to. While Esther covers the deliverance of all of God's people from annihilation, it's moving because it focuses in on just a handful of players who hold the fate of a people together. So in the opening verse, we meet that the first player, King Xerxes. 1 verse 1, opening line. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. Uh, you know, King, King Xerxes is king of the vast Persian Empire, the superpower of the day, from India to Kush or Egypt, as we'd know it. Uh, we quickly discover, um, if you read on that, you know, with his wealth, because he's, he's brash and he's volatile. So he throws this massive banquet in the third year of his reign. Um, when I say a massive banquet, it wasn't a big night. It was a six-month party. Uh, in verse 4, he explains it's to give him a chance to show off the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendour and glory of his majesty. Uh, at the end, uh, he gets drunk and demands that his queen, Vashti, come in and display her beauty to his lascivious mates. Uh, she is actually too noble and respectable uh, to be part of this meat market and so she finds herself cast out of his presence forever. Uh, when he sobers up, uh, he decides he's going to have a, a, a beauty pageant to find a new queen. And so we meet Mordecai. Uh, he's one of God's people, the Jews. So in 2 verse 5 it says, have a look at it, now there was in the citadel of Susa, the capital, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. How he's introduced matters. Before we even get his name, what are we told? He's Jewish. He comes from the line of King Saul. Uh, he's part of a remnant of exiles who didn't actually return home to Jerusalem when the Persians came to power. Uh, he, he's part of God's people, but, but there are people living a long way from home. So Persia is his environment, the Jews' environment, and, and it's what they live in as a powerless people and they are at odds with their surrounds. So even though they're living to, to seek the welfare of the city, they're told by God to do so, they have to still be dedicated to God and so they stick out. And they're always noticeable as people who don't kind of fit in even as they serve others. Mordecai later on proves how worthwhile he is to the king uh, gets his name in the official records because he foils a plot on the king's life. Uh, but before we get there, we meet his younger cousin, Esther, uh, whom he has care for. Uh, first introduction to her is in 2 verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he brought up because she had neither father nor mother. The girl was also known as Esther. Uh, she was lovely in form and features. 
And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. What do we need to know about her? What does the author want us to know? Well, she's an orphan. She's under Mordecai's care and authority and she's drop-dead gorgeous. Uh, The more literal versions uh, and translations talk about how she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Uh, And we read, Mike read to us, um, her victory in the beauty contest, her rise to be the queen of this vast empire. But all the while, her Judaism is a little secret. Hasn't been exposed, no one knows. Uh, Final of our four key players we need to know is Haman. Uh, Start of chapter 3, we get to meet him. He's an Agagite who are a particular clan with a hostility towards God's people and a particular hatred and an ongoing thing with King Saul's family, Mordecai's family. Uh, He's also effectively the Prime Minister and he is a guy with massive insecurity. I wouldn't want to say that of every politician, but this guy, huge insecurity issues. So Mordecai won't bow down and pay him homage and so he wants revenge, but more than that, he decides he's going to destroy every Jew in the empire because of Mordecai. That's where the plot gets all thick and exciting. Uh, he offers 10,000 talents of silver to the royal coffers uh, if he can have a sanctioned day of violence against these countercultural Jews. Yeah, it's an absurd figure, uh, about $6 million. He's saying, I will pay the government $6 million. Don't know where he'll get the money from, but he'll... he'll unthinkable to our ears, that he could pay that kind of money to have normal laws of justice just kind of forgotten for the day. Imagine a politician trying to espouse uh, no recriminations for any crimes against a certain minority on a day. Seems unthinkable. And yet, we've got our historical minds on, it's happened again and again across cultures through the ages. Uh, The horror of you know, civilised modern Germany, uh, just last century, is still in our minds. Uh, our own national day uh, is known by many as Invasion Day. Uh, the king gives permission. Uh, Esther 3, verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to, to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children on a single day, the 13th of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Government sanctioned to destroy the people. Uh, Mordecai's, it's spread across the empire. For some reason, Esther's the last to hear about it. Uh, Mordecai grieves publicly and it comes to her attention. And Mordecai says to Esther, you need to act on behalf of your people. And she's afraid because even though she's queen, the law was you couldn't enter the inner court and go to the king unless he asked you to come on pain of death. Didn't have drop-in visitors uh, a whole lot. She is afraid, but Mordecai gives a clear answer. Have a look at 4 verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, uh, so she sent a message back to him, he sent this, back, uh, this answer back to her. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. She's scared, but 
Mordecai is, is blunt to the point of brutality in his response. You know, you face death um, if you do nothing anyway. <laughs> You're not going to escape. But there actually will be deliverance. You know, there's a confidence. Deliverance for the Jews will arise. It's just a case of are you going to be a part of it? So if you choose not to, well, your line will be wiped out. Not part of this pogrom because deliverance is going to come. But will you participate? It's high risk. Deliverance will come, but will you participate? Will you join in, Esther? Uh, to kind of spoil the ending, well, we know the ending. She decides to act uh, and, and the tension of the book kind of gets resolved in the last half. So um, Esther sets up this private feast for um, Haman and the king. Uh, Haman's thinking, oh, super, I'm, I'm an even better favourite. Uh, but everything gets overturned for the assembly of the Jews. Um, he's been planning the execution of Mordecai, uh, but even as that's happening, he's forced to take Mordecai around the city and give him honour. Uh, the feast at Esther's place goes kind of from bad to worse for Haman. So he's exposed for being the person who's trying to kill her and her people. Uh, the enraged king, for a moment, just steps outside to cool off. He comes back in and he finds Haman kind of falling all over Esther. So he's, he's trying to, Haman's trying to plead for his life and the king interprets it as he's molesting my bride even while I'm just out of the room. And so Haman gets executed on the gallows that he'd been preparing for Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai gets promoted, takes his position, and a new law is passed, a second law, because uh, you can't overturn the previous law about annihilating the Jews. So instead, a new law is th- done that says all the Jews are allowed to band together and they can fight and kill anyone they attack and there will be no recriminations upon them. So in chapter 9, it all resolves. Uh, 75,000 enemies of the Jews across the empire are killed, but there's no mention of Jewish casualties. And so the book finishes with a party, with a feast. Um, Chapter 8, verse 15. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, a a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a, a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy and gladness and honor. In every province, every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because the fear of Jews seized them. You know, they were a people on the edge of destruction, but they were delivered. You know, if birthdays, uh, you know, celebrating life, you know, you survive for another year is worth celebrating, and they should, how much more when your life has been on the brink of destruction and been brought back, how much greater should the celebration be? Yeah, it, it is a, it's a great story, it's a great read, but guessing we're all a bunch of Gentiles, so what are we to make of it? Because I actually haven't pointed out the big elephant in the room when it comes to reading Esther. Uh, An elephant that makes Christians a little uncomfortable about the book. God doesn't get a mention. Not once. Now, Martin Luther said, I am so hostile to Esther that I wish that it didn't exist at all. For they all... uh, for, for they all Judaize too much and are full of heathen perverseness. Great reminder that um, don't expect too much from the heroes of faith, um, even guys like Martin Luther. But the noticeable absence of God is the important point. God actually delivers people through normal coincidence, not just miraculous. 
So there's this ringing confidence throughout the book that God's people are going to be delivered. Uh, We read earlier in in chapter 4, Mordecai was confident about it. But in fact, even the enemies of God realised that. So in 6.13, Haman's wife and his friends give him advice because he's having a bit of a cry. Um, Since Mordecai, uh, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to rule. This is the pagan friends, family. They know that deliverance is certain for God's people. And it comes through coincidence. So if you read the story, it's just almost ridiculous. You know, Vashti is removed at just the perfect time, the previous queen, uh, for Esther to get a place. You know, Mordecai happens to be in the right place at the right time to hear a plot against the king so he can foil it. Uh, King Xerxes happens to have insomnia at this critical time when Mordecai is about to be executed the next day. He wants to go to sleep, so he gets someone to read him stories of his own reign, and he comes across the story of Mordecai. Oh, well, can't have him dead. Uh, you know, Haman enters the, the court um, at just the right time as the king is pondering, how can I reward Mordecai? Uh, Haman, you know, and ends up being humbled there. Uh, the king returns at just the time when Haman's pleading for his life and looking like he's molesting Esther. You know, it, it's all these ridiculous improbabilities. None of them are the plan. You know, they're not planned by the Jewish people. All the while, God is concealed. You know, there's a deist lie that uh, without God's miraculous intervention, he's not working his purposes. But Romans 8 makes explicit the truth that God actually works in all things for the good of those who love him, to make them more and more like Jesus. That's what's good for us. But Esther makes the same point, and I want to say louder, because it doesn't even say it. It just leaves God out. It's silent about God. You know, Purim is that feast of chance where in 922 sorrow was turned to joy. You know, they were, God's people were passive, and yet they were delivered. And that hiddenness of, of God's actions in history and, and in reality and experience is actually essential for you and I understanding how God works. You know, perhaps you've asked, why can't I see God at work in my life? Well, you do. But like Esther, it doesn't come with explicit mentions. There are no neon signs that say, oh, God's working now. And then it flicks off because he stops. No, no, he's always working. He's ever-present even when he's most absent. You know, even without miracles, without dreams, without visions, even without you know, God talk, um, he is still there to deliver. As Proverbs 16.33 says, that the, the, the lot is cast into the lap, you know, the dice is thrown, but every decision comes from the Lord. And we are people who have experienced a greater deliverance than the Jews. Uh, eternal salvation. Uh, Ephesians 2 talks about how we were dead and have been brought to life in Christ. You know, our great enemies of sin and death and Satan in the cross have been overturned. I, I want to say there's been an even more remarkable deliverance, perhaps one we don't notice. Another enemy that we probably don't can think of as our enemy, we have been delivered from God himself. See, Colossians 1 talks about how our sin had actually made us the enemies of God. We, by nature, were objects of his wrath. He was our enemy. And we've been delivered from him. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, in the the 18th century, a a Puritan preacher over in New England, preached a sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. You can kind of guess the tone just from the title. Uh, In part, he says this about our natural state that draws us plummeting to hell. 
your wickedness makes you as, as if you are heavy as lead and to tend towards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and your best contrivance and and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment. And there's no other reason to be given why you haven't dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand has held you up. Our deliverance is not just from the enemies we notice, it's deliverance from God himself in Christ. And that deliverance in the spectacular work of the cross actually works out in really ordinary lives, in the lives of individuals in really ordinary, unseen ways. You know, that gentle conversation where you share with your friend at work uh, about your experience of God. You know, that, that, that quiet kind of refinement as the Spirit is refining as you sit under the Word each week and just get shaped to be like Jesus. It's ordinary and it's dull and it's just, well, our deliverance is certain, but it comes through ordinary means. After looking at Esther, glancing at it, Two questions I want to leave us with. One is, how are you going to participate in the certain deliverance of God? Yeah, Mordecai put that question to Esther, didn't he? He said, who knows, but you've come to this royal position for such a time as this. The question we need to ask, why, why has God put you where you are? You know, why have you enjoyed the comforts of Australia rather than poverty in Sudan? You know, why does he given you the gifts of the people around you? Why has he given you the gift of marriage and a family if he has, or singleness if that's the gift he's given you? Why has he placed you in the paid work that you have, or alternatively, the fact that you don't have paid work at this time? Why has he put you in this era of Australia, not you know a couple of hundred years ago? Like Esther, we're not at home. We are exiles waiting our full deliverance. Um, just this week, I got a pamphlet from uh, Anglicare with the title, For Such a Time as This. A quote directly from Esther, God subtly working through coincidence. Uh, I, I wanted to, uh, it goes on to say, uh, given the, the current global financial crisis, that Anglicare had been placed by God to act now for the welfare of the city. It saw why it was there in the purposes of God. Uh, I want to say it's a helpful call to, to participate. But, but we want to say more, don't we? You know, the context of Esther is about saving God's people. God is going to save his people. Deliverance will come from somewhere, Esther's told. It's just a case of are you going to be part of it or not? Will you make the most of the place he has put you, surrounded by the people he has given you, to join in and bring about the advance of that deliverance? Now, Esther and Mordecai aren't perfect. If you do choose to read it tonight, you'll find that out. You know, Esther becomes queen by putting it very crassly, outperforming others in the bedroom. Um, Mordecai uh, is a stubborn man. Uh, you know, he won't bow to Haman even though he bows to the king and other princes. You know, they're not perfect and yet they're used by God. And we are called to cooperate with God's purposes, to join in bringing that salvation about. 
And so often our temptation is just to capitulate and join the pattern of the world and be like everyone else. Uh, yesterday, get away, someone from another congregation shared uh, how they were struck a few years ago. Um, they were introduced by one non-Christian friend to some other friends and, and were told, oh, yeah, this is so-and-so. Um, they're a Christian, but it's fantastic. You wouldn't know it. She never says anything about being a Christian and she's just like us. And, and it was a real wake-up for her that suddenly here she was thinking that she was being a lovely witness for Jesus and, and yet everyone just thought she was one of them and just the same. You know, the pressures of work and relationships can, can leave us doing nothing more about advancing the kingdom of God in our neighbourhood than an hour or two on Sunday morning, uh, of course, provided nothing else is on. Deliverance of God is certain. How are you going to participate given where he's put you? Second question is, how are you going to celebrate? Yeah, if birthdays are worth celebrating, and they are, how much more eternal deliverance? Uh, we, we did read in Philippians, Paul was overwhelmed with joy because of salvation. The guy is there sitting rotting in prison. People are stirring up trouble for him, and yet he's celebrating, he's rejoicing. Now, Esther is a party book. Uh, it opens with a feast, there's a feast in the middle, and it finishes with a feast. You know, and it's a feast they're supposed to do every year. Remembrance is a key part of celebrating. And, and the overturning of Haman in the ironic fashion, it's meant to be funny. It's kind of dark, maybe Jewish humour. You know, have a laugh at this dark situation. Uh, the idea, though, is that in the end, God and his people have the last laugh. Like in Revelation 18, where, where the persecuted saints rejoice that their enemies are thrown down. You know, if you know deliverance then you savour it. Why is it that Christians widely are not known as celebrators? I chatted with someone earlier this week who wondered why our Christian community is so quick to be negative and dismissive of new ideas. We're the negative people. In the media, we're we're the killjoys. Now that's partly because we we expose the the false, the lies of the false fun of sin. But it's partly probably because we don't celebrate enough. <laughs> the joy of deliverance in Esther's time was so attractive that others joined them, became them. A few weeks ago, we, we celebrated Easter. You know, did we express it with joy? Uh, in a few weeks' time, we're going to be celebrating a, a dinner, 125 years of a Christian witness here in Kirribilli. Uh, but I want us to start, uh, maybe over morning tea this morning, start talking with each other. How can we creatively... Remember the salvation and celebrate what we have in Jesus. How do we celebrate deliverance? Now let's pray God gives us insight. Lord and Father, we thank you for deliverance uh, from our enemies of sin and death and the evil one and especially we're delivered from your wrath and brought to be your friends again. Father, we ask that you would work in us that we might love you and delight in you, that we would join in and make the most of where you've placed us that we would delight in the way we see you at work even where you're unseen and that we would be people who celebrate and rejoice in such a visible way that others would see how great it is to be saved in Jesus. Amen.